So we are uh, studying world religions. Today is Hinduism. Hinduism is the third largest religion in the world. Approximately 900 million practitioners of Hinduism. And uh, they're not only located in India. Uh, it's estimated somewhere between 1 and 2 million Hindus here in the United States. I showed the video there of Russell Brand just to remind us that uh, Hindu philosophy is absolutely uh, in our culture, swirling around us. And so we might very well work with a Hindu, be neighbors to a Hindu, have a Hindu friend, maybe a family member, classmate. And so it's important that we understand what Hindus believe uh, so that we can engage them in conversation and ultimately point them to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Linda Johnson wrote a book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Hinduism in which she points out that Hinduism is by far the most complex religion in the world. Shading under its enormous parasol an incredibly diverse array of contrasting beliefs, practices, and denominations. And so I'm going to attempt to synthesize the thought and practices of uh, Hindus and what I say applies to the vast majority, but I understand that there are always exceptions. This is uh, quite, quite a diverse religious system. Norman Geisler gives us a chart of beliefs in which he reminds us that, you know, some people believe there's a God and others that there is no God. But even if you're talking to somebody who believes there's a God, there are additional questions you've got to ask. Do you believe there's one God or many gods? Many gods, polytheism. Uh, some Hindus are polytheistic. Most Hindus actually believe in one God. Uh, they call that God Brahman. And they believe that the, all the gods and goddesses of the Hindu pantheon are, are uh, ultimately manifestations of that one God, Brahman. But even if somebody believes in one God, there's an additional question you have to ask. Uh, is that God part of the universe he created or separate from? We Christians believe that God created the universe, but he is separate from his universe. Uh, you and I are created in the image of God, but we are not God. The trees are not God. The cows are not God. The grasshoppers aren't God. Hindus, however, are pantheistic, which means they believe that God is a part of the universe. In fact, they believe that everything is ultimately an extension of God. Therefore, you are an extension of Brahman in the same way that a cow is an extension of Brahman and a grasshopper and a tree. Uh, pantheism. I mentioned last week that we are going to explore each religion with four questions. Uh, first question is, what is the problem with the human condition? Secondly, what is the solution to that problem? What is the religious goal? Thirdly, what are the techniques for achieving that goal? And then finally, who are some exemplars, people who've gone before, been there, done that, and we can follow their example? For Hinduism, the problem is samsara. Samsara is the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And Hindus say that not only are people caught in this cycle, this reincarnation 
uh, as we've heard it. But the entire cosmos is caught up in the samsara cycle. You might not know it, but this is not, according to Hindus, the first iteration of our universe. We are in the Kali cycle. It's supposed to last 432,000 years. Uh, Many Hindus believe it began about 3,102 years before the birth of Christ. But the Kali cycle is just, it's not the first. There have been many uh, iterations of our universe before, and there will be many after. This is not your first life. You've lived before, according to Hindus, probably hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of times before, and you will uh, most likely live many, many lives to come. Now, in the West, reincarnation uh, is sort of a comforting thought for many. Hey, I get to live again. This life isn't all I get. But for Hindus, it's the problem. They consider samsara, life, death, rebirth, a vicious cycle, one that they are desperate to escape. They view it, you're on the, you know, it's a crazy cycle. You're on a rat wheel and you want to get off. Probably because uh, for Hindus recognize that for many people on earth, life is uh, riddled with suffering and hardship and difficulty. So, For Hindus, samsara is the problem, and so the goal becomes liberation from, escape from, get off the treadmill. And they call this moksha, liberation from the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. Hindus conceive of moksha differently, though. Uh, Probably the original... Uh, understanding of moksha was a remerging of your soul back into Brahman. Remember, you're merely an extension of sort of the cosmic force. And then you can cease to exist. You just sort of an impersonal remerging of yourself into the ineffable cosmic force. You go away. You cease to exist. And that is a a goal that many Hindus have aspired to. Other Hindus conceive of moksha as a place, a paradise place, usually linked to the home of one of the gods. You're going to go live with Vishnu or Shiva or Krishna, uh, and there you will be in paradise forever and ever. And a third concept of moksha is... uh, a loving union that lasts forever between an individual soul, your soul, and that of the god or goddess that you worshipped while you were on earth. So Hindus conceive of uh, moksha differently, but all of them want to escape this life cycle of life, death, and rebirth, samsara. They all want to escape. They conceive of it differently. Now, Hindus believe that... um, Eventually, everyone will achieve moksha. At any given, on, in any given life cycle, uh, a very small percentage of people actually achieve moksha. But eventually, over millions and millions of years, we'll all get it right someday, and we will all get to escape. That's sort of universal salvation uh, as defined by Hindus. Samsara is the problem. Moksha is the solution or the goal of Hinduism. And then there are three techniques 
all legitimate, all practiced, three techniques for achieving moksha. Now, the first two techniques, they're of the 900 million Hindus in the world, only a few million practice the first two. The vast, vast majority practice the final technique. So I'll go a little faster through the first two. The first technique is called karma yoga. We think of yoga as contortion, right? Right. Well, yoga actually just means discipline. And karma yoga is the discipline of action. Karma means action or deed. And, and the idea is uh, simply this. Um, build up enough good karma so that when you die, you will either come back, uh, reincarnate in a better form of life, or ultimately you get enough built, good karma built up, boom, you can you know, achieve moksha. You can escape. And so uh, you've probably go, gone up to a coffee shop and the tip jar says good karma, right? I never give them a tip when they do that. It just irritates me. So if you're a barista, just say tip jar, and then you're lucky with me. So anyways, uh, that was not planned. Oh, yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about how to uh, achieve good karma, but bottom line is there are certain thoughts and certain deeds that will uh, help you accumulate good karma or, or bad karma. And when you die... Your next life is completely determined by the karma that you have built up, not just in this life, but all your previous lives. It's kind of the sum total of your karma. So if you want to reincarnate into a higher plane or ultimately achieve moksha, uh, you've got to have, you've got to uh, keep building good karma. So here's, the way the, here's what the Bhagavad Gita says about karma. Perform all your actions with mind concentrated on the divine, renouncing attachment and looking upon success and failure with an equal eye. By the way, karma for the Hindus, um, karma they think of karma like we think of gravity. It's a law of the universe. They don't attach karma to um, a God's judgment. There's not some moral God who makes a judgment that some deeds are good and should be rewarded and some deeds are bad that should be punished. Karma is just sort of uh, a law of the universe that judges some actions and rewards and, and thoughts and rewards others. And more about that in a little bit. So karma yoga, the second technique for achieving moksha is called uh, jnana yoga. And that's the discipline of wisdom. And here, you've, this is when you think about kind of the Hindu holy man and the guru up in the mountain sitting in a cave, right? Um, there, and so the path of wisdom, what you're trying to do in jnana yoga is differentiate or discern the real from the unreal. That's the goal. Now, for Hindus, um, the real is sim- basically this. Help uh, understanding the universe as essentially all Brahman. And so you and I are actually not any different. We're just manifestations, extensions of Brahma, Brahman. I'm not any different than a plant or an animal. 
So the Bhagavad Gita puts it this way, perform all your actions with mind, strike that, next one, the, the one who can see, the one who can see the supreme Lord in all beings, the imperishable amid the perishable, this is the one who really sees. So there's a famous uh, illustration in Hinduism that helps kind of bring this across. So there's a story about a father who uh, told his son, uh, go get me a glass of water and a handful of salt. So the kid did. And the father said, all right, I want you to put the salt into the water. So the kid dumps the salt into the water. The next morning, the father says, uh, hey, son, you remember that salt I gave you? To And the son said, yeah. He said, uh, I want it back. So the, the kid, you know, overnight, the salt has all dissolved into the water. It takes some time. And so the kid brings the glass to his dad. He's like, I can't, I can't get the salt back for you. It's all dissolved into the water. And the dad says, we are like the salt. Stop thinking of yourself as an individual, as somehow different from, dis distinct from, or separate from anyone or anything else in the universe. Uh, you must come to understand yourself as uh, simply an, a one, an extension of Brahman. And so, Jnana Yoga, Jnana Yoga uh, attempts to see the world that way. And the idea is if you, if you can get your mind there, you can escape from this world. I read a story about a guy converted to Christianity, but he said his father was considered a great Hindu uh, guru. And for eight years, his father went into a trance-like state. His father died when he was 11, but he said, uh, never once in my life can I remember my father ever speaking to me. He said, when I was a boy, my, my greatest hope, my deepest desire is that dad would one time look at me and say, hey, Robbie. And he said, my father never acknowledged my presence. He went on to become a Christian. Probably wasn't too thrilled with Hinduism. But in Hinduism, uh, his father was considered a, a great man. He, he had, you know, achieved something that was uh, admired. He had been able to kind of uh, think about the universe in such a way that he was able to just sort of escape from this life. All right, so that's... Uh, Jnana Yoga, the third, and by far, by far in a way, the, virtually every Hindu you encounter today will uh, practice what is called Bhakti Yoga. Bhakti Yoga is the discipline of devotion. And very simply, it, it says this, find a god or goddess, worship that god or goddess, and that god or goddess will help you in this life and when you die, we'll help you either achieve a better reincarnation or possibly even moksha. And so uh, of the 900 million Hindus out there, other, uh, all but a few million of them practice bhakti yoga. They select one of the gods or goddesses of the hundreds in the Hindu pantheon, and they devote themselves to worshiping and serving that god or goddess believing that the god or goddess is personal, uh, desires to be worshipped and served, and will reward them accordingly. And so here's the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita on Bhakti Yoga. Whosoever desires to worship whatever deity, 
using whatever name, form, and method, with faith, I make their faith steady in that very deity. Endowed with steady faith, they worship that deity and fulfill their wishes through that deity. Those wishes are indeed granted only by me. So Hindus, uh, most Hindus believe that Brahman is the only God, but that Brahman manifests himself uh, as many different gods and goddesses so that we humans can interact uh, with, with him or her, with Brahman, uh, in a way that is uh, meaningful to us and matches our personalities and our, our uh, interests. Now, the, the Hindu pantheon, you know, the gods and goddesses of Hinduism are wildly different. You have hypersexual uh, gods and goddesses and violent ones and compassionate ones and funny ones and good luck ones. And, hey, pick the one that works for you. Now, in Hinduism, often you'll, you'll, your family, you'll kind of grow up. Hey, this is the god or the goddess our family worships. And so it's kind of a family thing or a village thing or clan has, has uh, selected it. But, but ultimately... Um, Hindus do have a free choice in this. There are four basic schools of worship. Uh, Vishnu, they worship Vishnu the sustainer, his wife Lakshmi, and Vishnu's incarnations such as Krishna and Rama. So you've encountered Hare Krishnas. Uh, they are uh, worshiping an incarnation of the god Vishnu, Krishna. Hare, Hare, Hare Krishna. And wasn't didn't John Lennon do a really... Nice sounding, weird song. George Harris about loving Krishna or something. That's worship. I mean, that song is worshiping uh, Krishna the God. Don't sing along with that one. Okay, then there's, although it's good music, I like that one. I'm like, darn it. Good sounding. Okay, school of Shiva. They worship Shiva the destroyer, his wife Parvati, and their son Ganesha. Ganesha is the elephant, the pink elephant god with one broken tusk. PowerPoint, man, you're like really outdoing me here. Okay, so your, your school. then there's the Shakti school. They worship Shakti, the great goddess, uh, and Shakti's consorts, Kali and Durga. And then there's the school of Smarta. They worship any number or combination of gods. So, uh, regarding Bhakti Yoga, um, the big... Somebody that... Uh, Bhakti yoga practitioners um, admire is uh, Rami Krishna. Rami Krishna lived in the 1800s, and he, uh, Rami Krishna was a um, a guru who supposedly spent hours a day lovingly worshiping the god, uh, the goddess Kali. And so here's what's written about Rami Krishna: Rami Krishna's absolute trust in and devotion devotion to the mother goddess Kali led him from stage to stage of ecstasy, empowerment, and revelation of her nature in all its dazzling and paradoxical formal and formless aspects until at last he came to know her, to be inseparable from Brahman, the absolute reality, as inseparable as burning is from fire. All right, there was that funny cartoon in the New Yorker that was... uh, this is uh, about one of the uh, Jananan yoga practitioners. If I knew the meaning to life, would I be sitting in a cave in my underpants? I couldn't resist that one. All right. 
So there, that is uh, Hinduism in a nutshell. Now let me respond, uh, contrast it just a bit with Christianity, respond to it. Uh, first off, the Bible tells us that God is separate from his creation. And so uh, that's why we eat cows. Uh, we're not eating God when we eat cows. If you're a vegetarian, great. But uh, I eat cows. In fact, I eat it on the Traeger you guys gave me. So well done, well done. God is separate from the universe. And so although we, um, although we seek to take care, we seek to steward the um, the universe that God has created, um, we, don't, we, we don't think that we are interacting with God when we interact with creation. Secondly, uh, the Bible tells us that we only get one shot at life. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. We don't have a limitless number of lives to get it right. In fact, the Bible tells us that what we do in this life matters for eternity. Uh, to be precise, the decisions we make with regard to God's Son, Jesus Christ, and whether or not to put our faith in Him and follow Him uh, matters. And so, uh, because we believe in one life, this life, this life uh, is important. And we don't want to uh, be flippant with it. We don't want to mess around with it, right? We want to uh, be all that we can be. Seize the day. Thirdly, there is no such thing, we as Christians believe, there is no such thing as karmic fate. Let me take a moment and talk uh, a bit more about karma and karmic fate. Hinduism has a caste system. You've heard about this, right? Uh, and there are four castes of people. So Hinduism divides humanity into four basic castes. At the top are the Brahmins, and the Brahmins are the priestly caste. Underneath them are the warrior class, the administrative class. Then you, below them are the uh, merchant class, farmers, and then the lowest class are uh, the servants of the upper three classes. Now, there is an additional class. They're actually unclassified people. They are called the untouchables, the Dalits. And they're untouchable partly because they do things like um, tan cow hides. They deal with leather or they deal with dead bodies. They're cer ceremoniously unclean. Hindus believe that Brahmins have the greatest opportunity, the greatest chance of achieving moksha. And so what you want to do is, uh, during your multiple lifetimes, you want to work up the chain, become a, ultimately become a Brahmin, so that you have the best chance of uh, attaining uh, moksha. Hindus believe that the, the uh, caste into which you are born is determined by your past lives. Now understand this. You're a Hindu. Here's what you think. If I am born a Brahmin, if I am born into wealth and privilege, it's because I deserve it. Obviously, I can't really remember, but obviously, in my past lives, I was pretty awesome. And so now I'm a Brahmin, and I have wealth and privilege. And I should, because I obviously worked really hard at it in the past. And if you are born a Dalit, if you're of an untouchable, it's because you deserve it. 
Obviously, what you did in your past lives resulted in you being born as a, as a Dalit. You deserve that. What do you... Th yes. My understanding is you can go backwards, and, and, uh, and, and my understanding is that um, any non-human is down the chain. So even if you want to be a gazelle, really, that's, uh, you're, you're farther away from achieving moksha as a gazelle than you are even as a Dalit, right? So humans are, you know, you're, at least you're in the upper chances, but you've still got some, you know, some stages. So think about that, what this does to society as it relates to pride and as it relates to compassion, right? I see somebody who is uh, not only that, but anything that happens in life is, is a result of your karma. If you get sick, if you lose your job, you know, your karma has brought that upon you. So imagine I see a Dalit, somebody that's living in squalor. Uh, am I motivated? How motivated am I to help them? Well, they're getting what they deserve. In addition, and this is critical, um, Hindus understand, uh, they believe in karmic fate. Not just, don't mess with the laws of karma. In other words, it's, it is very bad for you to try to break out of your caste system because karma, this law of the universe, has decided uh, appropriately, they would say, that you are a Dalit. And don't fight the laws of karma. If you, tr if you uh, resist your karmic fate and try to better yourself, you're fighting against the, your karmic destiny, which means bad karma builds up for you. So if you're born an, un an untouchable, Hinduism says, remain an, untou uh, an untouchable, be content with that state in life, do not try to better yourself, and if you will do your duty, this is a huge part of Hinduism, do your duty, and if you do your duty, well, when you die, you'll have stored up good karma and you can come back as someone better. Does that make sense? And I read multiple testimonies of Dalits who they were taught by their parents, don't try to better your station in life. If you do, you know, bad karma will accumulate. Stay where you are, be content, and in the next life, it'll pay off for you. In addition to that, if I'm in a higher class and I reach down and try to help you better yourself, what am I doing? I'm also fighting against the laws of karma. And that's going to zing you and it'll zing me. Now, the caste system was officially abolished in India uh, in 1947 or 48. But it is still very much alive culturally because it is, it is upheld by and fundamental to the Hindu religion. Christianity does not believe in karmic fate. Christianity says every human is created in the image of God. And we have a responsibility before God to make the absolute best of our lives, be all that we can be, and help our neighbor do the same. There's a reason that in a land like India, India, India that has been dominated by Hinduism, there's a reason its society looks the way it does. 
And there's a reason America, which has been heavily influenced by Christianity, looks the way it does. These things have huge implications um, for society. Number four, the Bible is very clear that the worship of Hindu gods is actually the worship of demons. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18 says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Here he's saying, look, the idols aren't really gods, not, real, not in competition with the true God. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, that's taking communion, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? Now here's the tragedy. Hundreds of millions of people, in fact 15% of the world's population, their heart longs for a relationship with the God of the universe. They recognize there's something broken with the world. They know, I need help beyond myself. I want, I want God in my life. But, but Satan has taken that legitimate God-placed longing and he has channeled it in the wrong direction. And what has he done? He's channeled it ultimately to the worship of himself. And where is that longing in our heart supposed to take us? to the worship of the one true God and, and, and to a relationship with him. But Satan in his lies and his deception has channeled it right into the worship of the demonic. Now Paul, when he talked to the Athenians about their idolatry, he said, look, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And to repent is to put your faith in God's one and only son, Jesus Christ. And that's our final point. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son came to, the, to earth, and he took on human form. And God revealed himself to us. And last month's memory verse, Jesus said, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. God God is, uh, Jesus is not one of many gods. He's not one of many possible uh, options and roads to God. He is uh, the one and only son and the only way to a relationship with the creator God of the universe. Let me finish with a story of Bobby Jindal. He is governor of Louisiana. He grew up a Hindu. As a young man, he became a Christian. This distressed his parents. His mother cried. He said she cried for weeks. In fact, it got so bad that his dad came to him and said, Bobby, please, you have got to do something. This is totally unhealthy for your mom. And, and he said, I couldn't take it anymore. And I went to mom and said, okay, mom, I will reexamine uh, my Hindu uh, roots. That pacified her for a moment. He said, I went back to my room and immediately I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. And I knew that's just, I can't do that. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's governor of Louisiana. And he said, in my parents' mind, the fact that I have become a Christian 
just, it's this cloud over all my accomplishments. And here's what he writes. If Christianity is merely one of many equally valid religions, then the sacrifices I made, including the loss of my family's peace, were senseless. Of course, he doesn't. He doesn't believe Jesus is just one of many gods. He believes that Jesus is God and the only mediator between God and man. I want to invite the worship team back up, and uh, we're going to declare uh, our belief in the one true God and just praise him for uh, revealing himself to us uh, so that we don't just have to drift around trying to get the deep longings of our heart met. But we have, uh, a, we have a Lord and a Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know what? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you've got a longing in your heart uh, to know God, uh, please don't leave today without encountering the Lord and Savior.